0: This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, doing a live, in-person recording from fabulous Las Vegas. Here we are at ESMIS, the Society for Minimally Invasive Spine Surgery, meeting chaired by Dr. Frank Phillips of Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. And I am just delighted to be joined by an old friend, a dear friend, Dr. Shah Ahmad. Shah is a Rush Neurosurgery graduate who is this year doing a fellowship uh, in spine surgery, which we're going to touch on today. The aspects of that fellowship, why he's doing it, what he's getting out of it, and what drew him to it. Shah, welcome to the show. JP, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you. I always love doing these recordings in person, and the fact that we're doing it here in Las Vegas is appropriate. So. Uh for those of our listeners who don't know you, uh maybe introduce yourself, give a little background and well you're a Nevadan, aren't you? That's
1: right, that's right. You can you can tell um from the time that we've been here. But uh yeah, I grew up in Las Vegas. Uh parents were both physicians, private practice owners. Uh they were solo practitioners for about twenty, twenty five years, which I think influenced a lot of kind of my thought process behind where I want to do fellowship and, and my career after that. But uh went to Rush for residency in Indianapolis now, and uh, figuring out basically where I'll be after that.
0: Yeah, so people who know anything about neurosurgery and about spine surgery might balk at the idea of doing a spine fellowship after graduating from Rush. We have one of the premier fellowships in the country, uh, a world-class faculty list in in spine neurosurgery, but there is a particular aspect of the fellowship you're doing that uh, we do not have it, rush and, you know, skills that you could learn that we, we don't offer. So maybe tell the listeners a bit about the fellowship you're doing and why. Absolutely.
1: I, you know, I think you start out training, um, especially some of us who've, who've spent so many years in training thinking, well, I'll do a fellowship. And you don't put too much thought into it beyond that, um, you know, until you start getting up in, in, into the more senior years. Uh, our program director, uh, Vince Trainalis, gave me a real hard time about it. To be honest, right yeah. off the bat, uh, you know he says uh, we've you know we've we've done hundreds and hundreds, if not you know over a thousand spine cases here. You get excellent training. Why would you want to do that? And basically, what I told him was, what I'm looking for is a place where I can learn the business of spine surgery, where I can learn, you know, um, a, a team of people that are are basically running an effective. Um, efficient spine practice. How they're doing it, what techniques they're using, um, and and that sort of thing, which is something you just don't get a lot of access to, I think, in uh, academic medicine. And uh, he, right off the bat, kind of knew exactly what I was looking for. He's good friends with with Rick Sasso from his time at uh, CSRS, and um, basically set me up in that way. And and so my goal really for the fellowship was. Uh, to learn spine surgery from the orthopedic perspective, which I think is something very valuable to a neurosurgery resident. But beyond that, really, it's uh, to see how they're running this kind of institution that they've got uh, for spine surgery and, and specifically outpatient spine surgery.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the best things that we do with this podcast, it, it's kind of a vehicle for sharing advice. And so I will point out for our listeners, Dr. Trinellis was on the show doing an episode about fellowships and kind of his breakdown on how he advises people when we his residents come to him and ask about doing fellowships and that's exactly what he said on the show that's what he always says in person first question is why would you do a fellowship and and that's always where he starts yeah. um, I would also say that you know I've, I've been going through this process myself about thinking should I do a fellowship if so what and uh, our current program director Ricardo Fontes told me if you're going to do a fellowship, it should be somewhere that does something we don't do. It should be somewhere that you will actually be exposed to something new, not just a finishing school for things that you've seen in residency. And then finally, Mike Wang always says, it's a year of your life and a million dollars. So if it's worth a million dollars to you, then okay, do the fellowship.
1: Absolutely, I, I think especially after you graduate, right before you start your fellowship, the opportunity cost really hits you pretty hard. Yeah, You realize that this would be a year that you'd be making a salary, establishing a practice, having your family be able to settle down, all that sort of stuff, and, and you kind of have to put that off for another year. So absolutely, I think there's a, a great benefit to going somewhere where you're operating with new people, learning new things, doing something different, and something that will kind of give you a value add as you progress through
0: your career. Yeah, and so I think specifically one of the things I wanted to pick your brain about, Shab, um, is not just the business side of spine surgery, but particularly the outpatient side of spine surgery and doing these procedures in an ambulatory center outside of a hospital. I will, uh, Keshaw, I know you're very humble, but I will toot your horn for you. You gave a stunning grand rounds presentation as the culmination of your chief here. That's how we do it at rush. And he gave a tour de force overview of the history and the evolution of spine surgery happening in an outpatient basis and in a non-hospital ambulatory center. Our, Our chairman said it was the best grand rounds he'd ever seen. So, maybe you can set the stage for us before we dive into this topic and just break down for the listeners i mean we have people in medical school in early residency who are are listening to the show break down what the difference is between procedures done outside of a hospital at at an ambulatory center and how that started and evolved in this country sure so i'll I'll preface all of this to say uh, of course i'm just
1: out of training i'm doing my fellowship year I'm I'm not what anyone would call an expert at this but I've done some deep dives to the evidence I've 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 kind of seen where we are um from that perspective and then i i am lucky enough to be at really sort of a a mecca of outpatient spine surgery with one of the pioneers in the field rick sasso Um, and so that's kind of where i'm where i'm coming from i've I've had an interest in this for a long time and like jp said i've I've given my grand rounds talk now at a couple different places across the country you know i i think when you really break it down the fundamentals of of this idea are For a long time, we've done spine surgery, neurosurgery in, uh, obviously, a hospital setting. People come in, they get admitted, you do the surgery, and then they stay for X number of days and and get discharged after that. With some of the the advances that we've had in anesthesia, in technology, minimally invasive spine surgery, uh, people have started to realize that um, these are things that maybe the patient doesn't need to stay at the hospital for. So... Uh, you know, all of this, this whole process started about maybe 30, 40 years ago uh, when people started doing some of the smaller and safer spine surgeries uh, that we do, like uh, single level lumbar decompressions, uh, microdiscectomies, etc., cetera, um, that are quick, safe, uh, relatively bloodless, and realized that they could do these in a setting that wasn't the hospital. And so, um, you know, the first surgery center was built in, in Phoenix, Arizona uh, in the uh, 70s, and um, founded by two anesthesiologists and they started doing a, a number of procedures there. Spine surgery was late to the game um, and, and outpatient spine surgery really started becoming a thing uh, probably in the late 90s or so. And again, uh, Rick Sasso was sort of pioneering that. So, you know, these are these are surgeries that are done at a facility that is completely separate from a hospital. So the term ambulatory surgery center uh, refers to a freestanding facility that's not associated with a hospital. Uh, there's some, you know, ownership um, Uh, strategies out there where hospitals are involved, but generally these are freestanding. They have their own contracts with insurance companies for payment. Surgeons are generally the owners, um, and and that's kind of one of the big uh, advantages of an ASC these days, Um, and uh, they can be either same-day discharge where patients have their surgery done in the morning, leave later that day, or some of them are also 23-hour stay, meaning uh, they can stay overnight uh, as long as it's less than one day.
0: Yeah, so I'm a big foodie. I like to cook I like to eat and so when I think about these things and when I was listening to your talk a few months ago I kind of in my mind constructed this analogy with the restaurant business where you can go in and get a full sit down meal and that's a hospital admission you can get food to go and that's a same-day discharge outpatient surgery but then you can go to a food truck where you're getting the same to-go meal that you might get from a restaurant but the purveyor in the food truck doesn't have to pay real estate costs and as long as he's handing you the same quality burrito in a bag so to speak as walking into a brick and mortar chipotle you're getting the same product so obviously an ambulatory center not connected to a full hospital with icus and inpatient floors and pharmacies and labs and all all these inpatient facility costs there's a huge cost savings there but as with everything in life and medicine where there is a cost there is a risk and there's a trade-off so Maybe you can break down some of the pluses and minuses for where to choose to do a surgery. Sure. So, like JP said, this is
1: all about cost. As healthcare dollars have uh, have, have kind of really ballooned in the past 20, 30 years, people have been looking for ways to, to contain that cost. And spine surgery is a very big contributor to, to some of that. Um, you know, there's I, I don't have the percentage off the top of my head, but spine surgery makes up a not in unsubstantial, uh, percentage of total healthcare costs with the implants, the stays, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, the way that, that payment is done, uh, kind of in a very fundamental way is, is, uh, you know, you, you do the surgery, the, the insurance company, uh, or, or Medicare will pay basically, uh, some percentage of fees to the surgeon, some percentage of fees to the facility. Uh, and in general, there's pretty good evidence that, that, uh, Kind of uh, supports the statement. Doing surgery at an ambulatory surgery center is much cheaper for the same for the reasons that you just said. You're really not subsidizing the the cost losers that you have in a hospital, like an emergency department, um, and you know super super specialized things that cost a lot of money and, and aren't reimbursed very well. So you get rid of a lot of those costs, and what it allows you to do is uh, basically do these surgeries for very very cheap, relatively cheap, I, I suppose that's, I should say. Um, because of that. Uh, there's a couple different opportunities. One is the insurance companies really like it. Uh, When you look at the amount that they spend for paying for the same surgery in an inpatient setting versus an, an outpatient setting in an ambulatory surgery center, it's almost half. And and so it's clear that they are are really about it. And when you look at some of the marketing that's done for ambulatory surgery centers. Insurance companies uh, can, are a part of it often. Um, they're they're generally saying kind of marketing to patients even that if you get your surgery done at a surgery center, it's better for you. You get to leave earlier. You get you know you don't have to deal with uh, coming into a big city, uh, big big you know uh, big hospital, etc. The second thing is is uh, there's better margins generally. So if you're an owner in one of these ambulatory surgery centers, you're you're keeping your costs low. Um, the reimbursement is, um, you know, uh, obviously different for every surgery that you do, and you're incentivized to keep that cost low. There's obviously some conflicts there, um, you know, and, and I think one of the biggest critiques that that we have of the ASC world is that the evidence is essentially generated almost entirely by owners of ASCs, and, and there's a clear conflict of interest. Uh, they want to keep that that train going, obviously, but. It's certainly not controversial, I think, to say that doing a surgery at a surgery center um, is much cheaper uh, than, than you would do to do it at the, at the hospital. And, and you know, in a world where we're looking to really contain some of these costs, uh, that's something we have to think about. And it's not really something that we think about too much, I think, in, in residency. You know, Patient shows up, you do whatever surgery that needs to be done, you don't really think about the cost of the flow seal that you're using, You know how many implants you're doing. Mm. And then they stay, and you know, if they stay in the hospital, and they tell you, "Well, you know, I really don't want to go home today because you know my kids are annoying." Uh, they stay. You know, microdisc will stay for a day, two days, three days sometimes. Uh, and it's it's a little crazy to think that you know when, when I think um, you know we, we don't really pay attention to the costs that are kind of going on during that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're right. We see these patients that come in for a microdisc and, and stay for three nights, and sometimes it is the silliest reasons and sometimes it might be intrinsic patient factors. And that's another thing I want to ask you about because I think if, if, as I always do, I can paint with a broad brush, there are more orthopedic spine surgeons doing small outpatient MIS procedures and more in an ambulatory setting, and there are more neurosurgical spine surgeons still practicing in a hospital-based system. And I wonder if there's a difference in the patient populations that we see. Again, I, I can't quote a number for you, but I think it is more common for a neurosurgeon to see an 82-year-old that needs a lumbar decompression and more common for an orthopedic surgeon to see a 38-year-old triathlete who, has a, who needs a microdisc. And so perhaps some of these uh, practice pattern variations we see in our patients winding up in the hospital for a few nights, but they're in their 80s and have no support system at home versus someone at an ambulatory center going home the same day and doing fine might reflect the populations that are coming to each of these practices. Is that something you're seeing now that you're out in this world? You, you certainly see a big difference um, in the patients that
1: you're obviously operating on in a surgery center versus those you see in the hospital. You know, Rush was a big tertiary center Um, in a busy city, uh, you know, getting patients from hundreds of miles around it. And and you certainly will get patients that would would not be suitable. But, you know, I think the the art of outpatient spine surgery, it really seems to be patient selection. And when you look at different institutions that are doing a lot of these things, like Indiana Spine Group, like uh, the Rothman Institute, um, they have very specific criteria for what patients are okay to do in a surgery center or not. Right. I don't know that you can break it down necessarily that neurosurgeons are getting these referrals and orthopedics are getting those referrals. But when you look at a practice that's doing a lot of outpatient spine surgery, you know, they're seeing everybody. They, they really are. And, and what the surgeon needs to do. And, and again, the part that's, that's really the art to this is figure out which patient is appropriate to do in the surgery center. So in your example, you know, you see the 82 year old person, they've got diabetes, they've got, um, major issues, uh, major medical issues, you know, that's not someone that you would feel comfortable saying, all right, your ACDF's done, you know, get out of here. Yeah. Um, uh, but the 38 year old person whose you know, uh, wife is completely, uh, you know, on top of it and, you know, paying attention and, uh, they have really good support, generally, you know, very healthy, that's a person that I think would be reasonable to do that. So, you know, some of the criteria that are pretty commonly reflected across some of these institutions are uh, limits in BMI. So often um, these patients are going to be less than, you know, less than usually about 35 or sometimes even 30 BMI. They're going to be younger patients, so less than 60. Um, Patients who don't have comorbidities, specifically anesthesia-related comorbidities, so COPD, asthma. Um, o s a uh, these sort of things, and then i what I think is very interesting and probably the most important aspect of it is family support, yeah and so you know these patients are people that have someone uh, you know a and and it 's funny a lot of these uh kind of um, the 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 rule set that these institutions have they literally just say a responsible adult at sure. home uh you know it can be a parent it can be a, a spouse it can be whoever but it's vital that they have somebody there that's that's looking out for them and um you know you you come to realize that you know certain hospitals i think some are better than others but you know when someone gets sent to a ward depending on where you are, these people are not necessarily going to get checked in on that often. You know? and, and we worry so much about specific procedures like ACDFs, especially where you know, you're, you're very conscious of changes in their voice, uh, you know, any sort of swelling, any desaturations yeah. that they're having. And the truth of the matter is, you know, when they have someone who's at home with them, they're paying way more attention than a random nurse that's not really worked with spine patients on the ward would. And I think that's kind of a really vital part of it.
0: Yeah, I mean if you're at home with your wife in bed after a surgery, you're getting better than Q four checks. Absolutely. Yeah. By by definition, by someone who really knows you. Right. And as you said, even a subtle change in phonation, a spouse would pick that up. Um, I wonder then if I can pull on the thread a little bit that that you just started talking about, which would be the procedures offered in an ambulatory center. Because I, I think that as you as you uh, mentioned when, when we laid out this conversation going back decades now doing decompressions micro discs you know per- perfect case of a procedure to be done outpatient and disconnected from a hospital but increasingly in the past uh, five ten years we're seeing people doing fusions on an outpatient basis instrumentation and even inner body fusions um, ACDFs for example which many surgeons that I've spoken with at meetings or, or interview are more trepidatious about doing that in an outpatient setting because of the more potentially disastrous complications, like mm-hmm. we've been discussing, so in the review you did of trends in, in ambulatory spine surgery, and again, and what you're seeing now that you're getting out there, um, what's the adoption rate been like for fusion for interbody work in an outpatient setting, and and not just again, not just outpatient same day discharge from a hospital, but. Doing it in an ambulatory center, disconnected from a full hospital. Mm-hmm. So, what makes for a
1: good outpatient surgery? Uh, I think the main criteria are going to be surgeries that can be done in a short amount of time, and people have different definitions of that. But you know, I think two, three hours generally is what people would say. Uh, you know, if a surgery is going to take four, five, six hours, that may not be a good candidate just because of the general anesthesia involved. Surgeries that have a low uh, complication profile, uh, surgeries that uh, have relatively minimal blood loss in an average in an average case. Um, and then, uh, and a couple other factors. So it really started with lumbar decompressions and and microdiscectomies. And, you know, I think there was very little controversy, uh, although, you know, at the time, perhaps there was, but at this point, you know, doing a lumbar decompression one level, I think most people would would agree that that would be a safe surgery to do in a surgery center. That, you know, uh, progressed to doing some cervical surgery posteriorly. Uh, You know, I think the the big one was ACDFs. and, And when that was um, and and that really started in the early two thousands. Um, again, with with Dr. Sasso, who who put out a lot of the early evidence on this stuff, um, people were very hesitant to do a surgery where there's a risk of uh, of a hematoma, of a neck hematoma, and, and airway compromise, and 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 that sort of thing. So you know, one of the I think landmark papers really that that Dr. Sasso put out was one that looked at the very specific uh, characteristics of. Um, complications when it comes to ACDFs, and he found in a very large series of, of, of outpatient spine surgeries, where they basically observed these patients for extended periods of time, 48 hours, um, checking in on them very regularly, that every major complication that happened occurred within the first, really, one hour after mm. surgery. And, uh, and so that's really been the basis of some of the you know kind of protocols that these places have, where uh, an ACDF, for example, will have a four-hour stay They'll get a phone call um, as they're kind of on their way out from the surgeon uh, that will listen to their voice, ask them how they're feeling, um, and and then you know after that four hours is done, again there's very good evidence to say that that the major complications are not really happening after that, and right. that's a tough pill to swallow. I'll, I'll say when I gave my talk at Rush, you know, again uh, amongst a, a group of, of surgeons that are generally doing these ACDFs inpatient, um, you know, it's it's tough to send someone home and and know in the back of your mind that. Uh, you know airway compromise when you're sitting at home is is lethal
0: yeah
1: um so going beyond acdfs uh, i what's what's been happening more recently is lumbar fusions and again you start hitting the limit of the technology because you're you're saying well if i'm going to be doing a a t-lift for example you know how many hours is that going to take there's going to be some blood loss um you know, general anesthesia is a consideration. Uh, but as we've really progressed with our minimally invasive techniques, um, new techniques like like lateral inner body fusions, where you're looking at less time under general anesthesia, less blood loss, um, smaller incisions. It's, you know, we're realizing that these are surgeries that are now starting to fall into the realm of safe for outpatient spine surgery. So you are seeing some, some uh, uh, fusions and that sort of thing in these surgery centers. You know, one complication to all of this is it, it depends on who's paying for these surgeries. So, you know, Medicare, um, for at least the time being, uh, you know, they're kind of reluctant to pay for for uh, fusions in an in an ambulatory surgery center. And there's a lot of federal laws when it comes to what procedures can be covered and which ones can't be covered in a surgery center. And so. Um, you know that is a consideration, and some surgery centers see Medicare patients, some don't, and so you know. But when you are seeing a Medicare population, you really have to take into account kind of what the current administration, what CMS is 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 thinking when it comes to these sort of things, and that's something that changes year to year. You know, some some years certain procedures are covered, sometimes they're not, and there's a lot of discussion and a lot of lobbying from from very big groups um, as to you know what procedures should be done or or not done in a surgery center. So,
0: yeah, and. Not to open a can of worms talking about reimbursements and cost and payments for all of these things, but at least to you know tip a hat in that direction, because that would be a whole conversation in and of itself. We we did just recently uh, on the show, we had a, a two-part conversation about perverse incentives in research. And we tried to delve into why bad research happens and, and what motivations push people to fudge the numbers or use the wrong analysis because it generates the answer that you want and so on and so forth. And so this idea of perverse incentives is still fresh in my mind. And so maybe because you touched on it a little bit earlier, Shaw, you could maybe you could break down for us among the landscape of ambulatory centers in the country, how many of them are physician owned? How does that system work? And what is the incentive structure like when you're owning you own the building, the practice yourself, and every dollar and penny that's spent or earned in that building is all in the surgeon's hands. Yeah, I mean, perverse incentives is is really the right term for this. Uh, So 90% of
1: surgery centers are at least partially owned by, by surgeons. Um, there's a lot of laws that that regulate the stuff, um, you know. But in general, anti kickback laws, Stark laws, uh, that generally apply to physician ownership in healthcare facilities, uh, there's sort of a safe harbor when it comes to ambulatory surgery centers. So it's one of the few uh, healthcare facilities that surgeons really can be owners of. But uh, to that same, you know, uh, on that, uh, like to that, there there are incentives. Obviously, then where the majority of these are owned by the people doing surgery in them. So. There's a lot of literature on this, um, you know, and I think this is one of the biggest controversies. Every paper that's been published on these uh, surgeries, on their uh, their uh, cost savings, on their uh, safety, um, on the outcomes, these are all done by people who own surgery centers. And right. it's, it's in their best interest, obviously, to keep this going because the truth of the matter is uh, when you do a surgery, you know, you get paid a professional fee from the insurance company and that's really the smallest portion of the payments that are made for the surgery that's done the facility fees and and all the other related costs are uh, you know a much bigger percentage of, of the actual the total reimbursement for that surgery and so you know when surgeons are owners and they um, you know obviously can benefit from 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 you know making all that money then I think it's true that uh, we have to look with a very careful lens at the evidence that we're seeing, and and really ask the question: um, Are we pushing the boundaries too much on what is safe? You know, and so when you know a, a TLIF is a very well-paying procedure, or or an ACDF, and we have to ask: Well, are we doing the surgery um, because we're cost-conscious and we realize that it's a you know it's a it's a good place for uh, the patient to get the surgery done, or are we doing it because? We know that if we do the surgery in a hospital, we're going to be making a lot less money from it, um, and I think that's a fair question to ask, and 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 one that that really needs to be looked at carefully. I do think, in general, um, the surgeries that are done are being done safely, as far as I've seen, um, in fact, v- very safely and very effectively. And you realize that um, you know if you are a cost conscious surgeon, if you're a business owner. Um, You know, there's a lot of wasted costs that go into some of this stuff, especially when you're talking about a hospital that's doing, you know, 150 surgeries a day. Um, You know, you you end up paying for a lot of stuff that maybe you don't need to, and so you know, there's pros and cons to all of this for sure. But um, you know, I think the the question of are we doing this for safety? or Are we doing this for money? Is is one that will continue, uh, for sure, as long as you know surgeons continue to be owners in this. Which you know that's one of the big benefits of of a surgery center in a in a landscape in a in a market where surgeons are increasingly becoming sort of cogs in a giant machine. Um, you know, we had a talk from uh, uh, Mr. Becker of of Becker Spine Review at this conference, and you know, he he it was some crazy statistic that eighty uh, percent of um, all physicians are now. Uh, employed by big systems and mm. United Healthcare through Optum owns like 10% of all physicians in the country. And, you know, spine surgeons, I think are a little bit less so than, than other specialties. But when, when you have that landscape, you know, any, any form of uh, situation where you can be an owner, um, you know, really kind of put up your shingle, uh, be responsible, feel pride for, for, for owning something and for running something effectively, it's just less and less available, I think, to people who are coming out of residency and, um, you know, I think there's maybe a disillusionment that comes from it too. Uh, as we come out, we're sort of told, well, yeah, you know, you join a big hospital system, you but you join an academic center. those are your options and um you know, I think uh, surgery centers and and you know um, private practice is sort of a you know something very different that we we just don't have a lot of exposure to, at least you know we didn't,
0: yeah, and you know that's actually precisely where I wanted to land the plane because. Last night, again, we're here in Vegas at ESMIS and we ran into Dr. Luis Tumilan, uh, a great friend of the show, been on a few times, hosted some episodes, uh, always with an insightful and forthright take on any topic. And so we ran into him and, and this topic of ASCs came up because we are gonna do this interview today and you and he started talking about trying to get an ambulatory center set up at an academic institution. And so I wonder if this is becoming an increasingly common practice structure and kind of as we were discussing before residencies happen at tertiary hospitals so the complexity of the cases and the general health of the patients are reflected in the fact that we're at a tertiary center with world experts and and that clearly doesn't completely reflect what the practice is going to be for most surgeons who go out into the world work at community hospitals and do more straightforward more common pathologies and less sick people; otherwise, they'd be at the tertiary centers. So, why do you think there is so little exposure to this more common, run-of-the-mill, less severe pathology, less sick people, outpatient, ambulatory spine surgery in training? Have we just not caught up, or is there resistance from the academic uh, academic community?
1: Yeah, I think that's there's there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons. So, I you know I think at academic centers. Um, you know, the especially for neurosurgeons and spine surgeons. You know, we make the hospital a lot of money, and we're making yeah. these universities a lot of money. And you know, they know that if we were to do a surgery center, uh, to to make a surgery center, start doing our surgeries there, that the hospital and the system is going to lose money from that. Right. You know, we're going to take the the well-paying um, insurance companies, the healthier patients that are cheaper to take care of, and we're going to shift them out of the hospital and into a surgery center. And the problem is is that the hospitals will continue to lose money because they're going to get the sickest patients, the ones who are, uh, you know, that are Medicaid and, you know, the kind of the lowest payers, and their profit margins are going to drop. And I think that makes it very difficult for someone who's employed by a hospital to go to administration and say, hey, I want to, you know, be an owner in a surgery center. And uh, yeah, also, you're going to lose a bunch of money because, you know, I'm going to be taking these healthy patients out now um, into uh, the surgery center. So I think that's that's part of it. I, I think the other tough thing with training especially is that the, you know, surgery centers are really not great places to uh, learn how to do surgery. Um, you know, these are places that the whole game is efficiency, speed, efficiency. Um, and, and so, you know, I think the few places that I've seen academic centers that are associated with the ambulatory surgery center, sometimes this, the residents don't even go to those places. These are right. places for just the surgeons to, to have their, their cases and and they do them on their own because, you know, trying to walk a, a third year resident through doing an ACDF at a surgery center is just sort of incompatible with the whole concept of it. And so that makes it really tough because you're right. uh, You know, the cases that we're seeing in residency are increasingly becoming, I think, more complex, um, sicker patients. But the truth of the matter is the, the, the average person who needs spine surgery in the country is probably, you know, a 66 year old, um, you know, with, uh, relatively isolated disease that needs a single level laminectomy or a single level ACDF or whatever the case may be you know it's not the um, you know uh, the person that needs a, a, a PSO or you know some sort of vertebrectomy or something like yeah. that and so that was a question that I, I posed during my talk in residency too which was you know how are we going to catch up with that as far as training goes, because, you know, we're doing all these things at these big centers. um, But that's really not what your practice is probably going to look like when you come out. Um, And I don't think there's a good answer to that at this point. You know, I think some residencies are doing a good job at um, getting residents involved in, in uh, some of these you know other facilities and that sort of thing. We had a very great rotation uh, with a private practice in Chicago where we got to spend a, a good amount of time with those guys and really kind of learn what that practice is like and it's very different as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we learn a lot from that. And I think that's that's of of you know great benefit to the residents. So, uh, you know, I think that's a trend that will continue where where these hospitals will associate with private practices and have residents rotate with private practice surgeons in sometimes surgery centers. And I think that'll go a long way to kind of preparing you when you come out to say, okay, what do I really want my practice to look like? It doesn't necessarily have to look like the academic spine surgeon that, you know, was my mentor.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm very happy we did this conversation today because this is the perfect moment in time to catch you and your thoughts about all this because you're out of residency, you've been exposed to this new business model, but you're not yet out there forging for yourself. And so one of the greatest benefits I have found in doing this podcast four years in now um, is that it's kind of a diary and I can go back and listen to episodes from 2019 and and have a record of, oh, this is what I was thinking about at the time, these are the references I was making, this is, that was my opinion about this, and maybe it's changed. So I'll invite you, Shaw, in four or five years when you're out there at the Ahmad Spine Center, ASC. Uh, wow. And, and, yeah, <laughs> and you're out there in practice. Come back, revisit this, and see if your thoughts today reflect what you find when you get out there in reality. And uh, if not, we'll have you back on and see what you were wrong about, what you were right about. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, it's a very, very
1: rapidly changing landscape, I think. And uh, you're right. You know, a couple of years from now, probably things are going to be very different. Um, it, it may be prescient to, to be, you know, really looking into the stuff and trying to get involved. Uh, or I may look like a big idiot. Uh, you, you never know. <laughs> well, you always do. <laughs> That's
0: right. All right. Shah Ahmad, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, JP. Great to be here. disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.